friends, and welcome to a new era of Conversations with Consequences, where we are working to change the culture one conversation at a time. Produced in partnership with EWTN, Conversations with Consequences is the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association. At the Catholic Association, we raise our strong Catholic voices within the public square during a pivotal time. You can catch us live every Saturday on EWTN Radio at 7 a.m. Eastern Time with an encore at 5 p.m. We're also carried on Sirius XM 130. As always, you can listen anytime by visiting the thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. It's amazing to think about the big wins the Trump administration gave us in terms of life and religious liberty over the last four years, sadly coming to an end. Spoken about this quite a bit, but it's really worth highlighting, especially as we look at a completely different landscape going forward. So we're excited right now to introduce our good friend back on the show, Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Recently, she shared a White House document which showcased the religious liberty and dignity of life wins of the Trump administration. And we'd like to highlight some of those big ones. So good afternoon, Mary. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a delight to talk with you. It's wonderful to have you on because you have such a soothing (laughs) presence. You do me so much good, Mary. We're having a crazy week, a crazy year, it seems, with uh, so much going on. Too much. It's never, never any calm times, it seems. You know what? That's one good thing about being a Catholic because we have the sweep of salvation history to remind us that God is in charge. This too shall pass. The you know the bad and and the good will come again, and He is Lord of it all. You see what I mean? That's why it's so wonderful to have you on. (laughs) So, Mary, you highlighted religious liberty wins of the Trump and Pence administration. Which one do you find to be the most important, the most monumental? You know, I think the way I would break it down is is that there were sort of three kinds of significant activities that came out of the Trump administration, and and they each have value in and of themselves. So, on the one hand, there are the statements and the positive recognition of religious liberty and the rights, the conscience rights of people, and the just the the visibility of religion in a positive way was very much a part of the Trump administration. So that's that's one. You could call it a conceptual or, or symbolic level. But I think also, you know, people want to say, well, okay, what changed? The things that changed were some significant agency actions building off of executive orders, which affected the ability of people of faith to participate in federal programs, to uh, not be at risk of not being able to either apply for grants or to uh, participate in anything that's involving federal funding. In other words, there was a reinforcement through agency action of the conscience rights of people who engage with the federal government in some way. And and that was very important, and we can discuss that more. But I I think there's a a third kind of action that I would think of as sort of enforcement, and that's where through the Civil Rights Office, both in the Department of Justice and then the HHS has a new conscience office, there was a concerted effort to protect the rights of religious people, the conscience rights, particularly in healthcare, in areas where uh, people have very much felt beleaguered and under the gun and, and pressured to compromise their beliefs because of the direction that the culture has gone in. So the Trump administration came in and cited on behalf of religious believers in a number of these specific cases, but also filed briefs in important legal cases ranging from the Supreme Court to to federal cases at the district level and, and the circuit court level, emphasizing again the administration's strong principled stand backing religious liberty. So there's these, these three things, the conceptual and sort of um, visibility of religion, and then there's the the protection of the ability of religious people to participate fully in the life of society, including where that interacts with the federal government. And then there was the enforcement aspect, the, the idea of coming into the legal process or initiating civil rights enforcement actions to protect the rights of believers. And, and all three things, I think, were tremendously important. And that's why people realized there was so much good done on the level of religious liberty under this administration. That first section that you talked 
talk about that first mm-hmm. part of it, which is a conceptual or symbolic level. Mm-hmm. I think that we got used to having it around uh, because mm. it happened. I feel like it happened slowly over the four years. Um, um, it happened. Small elements were added on and on. But I, I do think that we're going to miss it very much because there, there was yeah. a sense that religious people, uh, more than having a voice in, in Washington, had an under. They felt they were being understood, and I, you know, I speak mm-hmm. for myself, but I feel like that. I, I felt like my worldview was not just represented, but respected and mm-hmm. heard, and people like me. People like so many of our listeners were actually welcome to the table in a sense, like their views and their ideals were welcome at the at the governing table. I think you're exactly right. It's that sense that there was genuine respect and there wasn't um, we no longer felt on the defensive, which unfortunately was very much the posture that I think a lot of religious believers found themselves in under the, the Obama administration. And unfortunately, there's there's some signs that we have some concerns about the direction that we can expect the Biden administration to go in. So this really has been a wonderful time over these four years of having faith acknowledged in public life and not dismissed or disrespected or or portrayed as something that is inevitably discriminatory or hurts the fabric of society. It's regarded as a good thing. That stupid old comment of President Obama's um, you know, clinging to guns and, and Bibles, mm. however it goes. How did it go? Right. <laughs> clinging to their Bibles. Right. But that did encapsulate for for so many Americans, this idea that the elite, that the ruling class had relegated their worldviews to the trash heap of history. And right. we were, during the Trump administration, we were allowed to come back into into that, into the light and say, and, and feel that our attitudes were respectable and, mm-hmm. and had a place at the table. Yeah, and, and I think that's something not to be underestimated because especially since we had a, uh, a couple of decades, really, of Supreme Court cases that were in effect diminishing the place of religious believers or at least making a contested space to be in the public space and to be having having recognition of religion in a positive way. And so the court has certainly shifted, but it was nice to have that that harmony, frankly, between the direction that the court was going in terms of interpreting and defending religious freedom and conscience rights, and then seeing that recognized and respected very much on the federal level through this administration. I mean, you know, because let's face it, Mary, most Americans are, they're hostages to whatever the public, whatever the public is shoveling that day or mm-hmm. <laughs> putting in, mm-hmm. right? I mean, most people can't afford to send their kids to a private school that, or a parochial school that will deliver the same kind of values and teachings that they're learning at home. So, so many things that are under the control of the gov- of whether the state or the federal government. It's, it's rather scary for for regular Americans who would like polity that reflects back to them their values and mm-hmm. and can't find that. Yes, and it'll be interesting to see under the Biden administration because Joe Biden has made faith central to well certainly his persona the public persona that he projects but he's spoken about it in his campaign rallies and yet many of the policies that he supports for example championing the equality act which he says is going to be sort of a day one objective to to push that through through congress and he might be able to now with the georgia results there's the equality act really comes at a cost to religious freedom because it specifically disallows the use of of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a defense to the accusation that you're discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So we have this this conflict here, or at least potential conflict in terms of the persona of Joe Biden, the Catholic and person of faith, and yet the policies he's supporting. And we had sort of the opposite. When President Trump had come in, people did not know him as a religious person. I think it's fair to say from the people I've spoken to and, and you've probably had similar conversations that there there seemed to be a lot of personal growth on that order and while he was in the administration but people didn't look at him or perceive him as someone who was overtly religious or a quote person of faith when he came into office and yet
yet his administration proved to be very friendly to people of faith and, and quite willing to you know to open wide the doors and, and say, you know, we celebrate this. This is part of who we are as Americans, no matter what your faith is. It's welcome in the public square and it doesn't disqualify you from receiving federal benefits or from participating or being who you are at work, you know, by expressing your your religious identity at work and, and things like that. So there was, it's just kind of interesting, the, uh, the contrast there. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mary, the difference, I think, for, for Joe Biden, maybe, is that old difference between relig- freedom of worship and freedom of religion, mm. right? So mm-hmm. maybe he's thinking, well, I'm a faithful Catholic, that's who I am. On the other hand, you know, religious people can't just go around deciding moral things for for the rest of the country. They need to stay mm-hmm. at home, not make a peep about it. That's freedom mm-hmm. of worship instead of freedom of religion. Right. And that's, you know, the Constitution protects the free expression. In other words, it, it's what you do. It's not just what you hold in your head or in your heart. It's, it's being who you are in a public way. And we know just from a natural law perspective that every human, it's built into every human being to search for God. And, and then because we're people made for relationship to express that with others, to be public about that. It's not meant to be a private thing. So you're right, in the Obama administration, there was a sort of a, a silencing, but a, a limiting, a narrowing of even the public understanding of that right. And we saw a lot of that widen and open up and become more fully what it is. So we'll see what will happen. It was really amazing what you what you point out about the Trump administration, that openness and welcome of religious experiences. And then combined with, with somebody who wasn't going around proclaiming himself, you know, a faithful this or that, right? Right, right. And the willingness too to go beyond rhetoric because I think the the normalizing of religious faith in public life is extremely important. And he certainly did that with his proclamations and his statements. And yet he backed it up with the executive orders, the the directions to his agencies about how they were to take into account religious freedom, both in foreign policy and protecting the rights of the persecuted, administering federal programs. So so it was backed up in a significant way. And then again, that, that sort of third area of going even further and saying, we're, we're going to defend the rights of religious believers when it, it, it affects a federal level concern, but to ensure that we mean business, to ensure that that's understood on the state level or, you know, as you go down closer to local levels, that, that this isn't just about airy policies. This is about how we live and this is about how we conduct our business and people have a right to follow their conscience at all times and not be compelled by the power of the state to violate their conscience, whether it's in relation to abortion or making a, a, a cake, a wedding cake, or, or whatever it might be. You wrote a book that is excellent. I recommend it to all our listeners called Get Out Now, and it's about the dangerous ideologies being promoted and enforced in public schools to American millions of American children. So you must have been happy when Religious Freedom Day in 2020, I remember President Trump hosted an event in the Oval Office to mark the release of guidance on First Amendment protections for the right to exercise religious belief in public school settings, and also to highlight his support for students who exercise their faith. A lot of your book has to do with gender ideology and the dangers of that for our young for our young people. I think we've seen across the culture in in really all elements of our society, not just social media, but in businesses and unfortunately in schools, that there's been a silencing. There's been an effort to shame people or dox people or or intimidate people if they're holding onto an unpopular view. And unfortunately, you know, there are religious beliefs that are not with it in terms of popular <laughs> culture. And and that's that's always been the case, right? If you look back in our our history, there have always been religious beliefs that others in society looked at and said, wow, that's that's kind of really different, really out there. But what's different right now is that we have this growing culture of silencing and shaming and, and doxing. And so the president's efforts um, on religious freedom day to reinforce that in terms of public education was really significant because unfortunately that's one of these contested areas that as the uh, the toxic climate from social media spills into other areas of our lives it becomes very difficult for believers in these 
you know, these settings. And so reinforcing those rights is important. So we'll see. And there are good Supreme Court cases on point to that effect. But again, you know, there are so few cases that go up to the Supreme Court or even that will make it to the appellate level if you lose at the at the district court level that it's important that there be a, a general message and a general atmosphere respecting faith and reminding administrators, reminding school principals and teachers to respect the faith of, of their students and their you know colleagues and, and things so that we don't get to the point where someone feels like they have to sue to vindicate their rights. We, we don't want that contentious. Thing. We want a climate that generally acknowledges the place of religion in public life and the importance of freedom of conscience to every single person. You know, one thing that I love that the Trump administration did uh, during the pandemic, it ensured that religious organizations like my local parochial school, mm-hmm. the one my, my, my children have all gone to, and I still have a daughter there, that, that they would form part and they would be able to participate in PPP, which is a payment mm-hmm. protection program, which kept so many good institutions afloat when they weren't able to, you know, do their normal things like have students and teach. So that was that was really beautiful of the administration. And, and I'm sorry to... I'm sorry to think that going forward, it may be very hard for religious organizations to participate in federal programs under a Biden administration. Yeah, I'm I'm afraid if it looks more similar to what we saw under the Obama administration, unfortunately, I think that's what we can expect. And that will be problematic. And in fact, there was even in the past couple of days, there was a, another statement from the White House just reinforcing that in education monies that are being paid out, that people who are homeschooling or people who are sending their children to private schools have a right to those fun- that funding assistance if they're not able to attend in person. Wow, in other words, he was reinforcing that right that every, you know, if you're if you're supporting the rights of children to have an education in the midst of the pandemic, that it's not up to the federal government to say, well, that only counts if you're in one of our schools. Wow, that's what, a, what an amazing move, no? That, if that could be mm-hmm. if that could be made to work because um, it's 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 really terrible the way, I mean, you're an expert at this after having written your book on public education, but it really is tremendous that so many parents, middle 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 class and, and poor parents are just subject to a public school education when, and it's their very own tax dollars that are being mm-hmm. used to educate their own children. And yet they can't, that money's not portable. They can't pick it up and put it towards a school that will actually educate their children and not just, um, you know, shovel dangerous ideologies down their throats. Yeah. And it's rather ironic because there is overwhelming support among parents and particularly minority parents for the concept of, of school choice of being able to have the education dollars follow their child and and for them to make the decision about where their child's going to thrive and what the best environment is so it's one of those those policy things that unfortunately the big education money is way out of step with the American people and with with parents in particular who are raising children and want to have that choice so it was a good thing to see that support, at least in concept, and then initially through some of these pandemic-related funding provisions, to have that support and acknowledgement of that right of parents to choose and for the government to support that choice. But again, you know, my fear is that much of this is going to be unwound as quickly as if you you pull a thread on a very loosely knit sweater. It's just quickly unwound. Joe Biden, Mary, has pretty much signaled his complete alliance with with the federal, with the teachers uh, unions. Mm -hmm. Um, And that pretty much, I think, uh, is a death knell for any hopes of expanding school choice over the next four years. Well, I I think that's exactly true, especially since it looks like the Democrats are going to have control over the Senate. So that is going to be very problematic. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot that can be accomplished on the state level. There absolutely is. In fact, most education dollars come through the state funding mechanisms, not from the federal government. But there is some that comes through the federal government, particularly related to um, funds for low-income children or, or people with disabilities or, or different different programs. So... I don't think people should give up and just say, oh, no, you know, no, no choice. This, this 
battle is over. Not true. It's just going to be fought on a different playing field. And so we have to we have to be smart and we have to just turn our focus to where we can make gains, even if in terms of congressional legislation, our, the possibilities are, are more than likely going to be close to zero. <laughs> so. There are there are a lot of really good reasons that everybody, every American can understand for for improving the, the, the educational opportunities for children. I mean, we I think all of us as Americans have seen the disaster that has ensued since COVID. We've uh, we've all seen how smaller schools like parochial schools and other small private schools have been able to pick up the ball and can keep going when big, huge public systems have thrown up their hands in despair and pretty much abandoned the kids. Right. And especially that's usually accompanied by a claim for more money, more funding. Yeah, in order we need to more money. <laughs> and, and yet so few of the public schools opened and even the ones that, that conducting virtual classes, the participation rate of, of children, especially, again, those who are most disadvantaged, was very low. And so, again, we're, we're failing our children if if by design, by policy option, we're paying more attention to the demands of teachers' unions than we are to the needs of students and families. Yeah, and we think of, uh, we tend to think these days of the public school systems as a jobs program for adults. <laughs> Well, and unfortunately, that's one of the reasons that when I talk to people in, on the state level that they say it's so hard to break that monopoly because when you have even a small town, the public school system tends to employ a lot of people, not just in the schools as teachers, but in related businesses. You know, who do you buy your toilet paper from? Who's your, mm. who helps in terms of the cafeteria and the food and the, you can have a lot of the local economy tied up into that public school system. And what they need to realize is, you know what, those opportunities aren't going to go away. It's just not going to be controlled all in one place. And just like anything else, when you introduce competition, when you, you give people options, we're going to see innovation and we're going to see more opportunities in terms of the economic growth. But it's it's you know helping people realize that that's a, that's a risk that's not only worth taking, it's really an obligation to our children because the schools have done across the board such a poor job of just simply educating, putting aside all the ideological issues, and, and there are plenty with the public schools, but just in terms of educating, it's just failure, as particularly in the big cities. So something's got to change, and it can't just be dumping more dollars into the public education system as is, which unfortunately is, I was just reading an education publication this morning, and you know that's, that's what the education establishment is expecting from Joe Biden, more money for their agenda, for their, their pet projects without changing the system. Um, Mary, one of the things that, that's in the document, and, and, I, and it was a very important move for me personally as a doctor, <laughs> was when the, the Trump administration created a conscience and religious freedom division within the Office for Civil Rights under the yeah. Department of Health and Human Services. And what it was meant to do, and it did, was to enforce already existing laws, federal laws, that protect the rights of conscience and religious freedom, especially... For instance, in the case of doctors and nurses who um, their employers try to force to participate in abortions, even when um, conscience says that they shouldn't. Right. And even even when there are existing laws that protect their right not to. So you're right. The, the creation of this conscience and religious freedom division within the Office of Civil Rights at HHS was tremendously important. For one, again, it just elevated that idea that conscience is important. And I remember talking to one of the key leaders over there who said that there were a lot of skeptics within that department at first. And his point to them was, no, you know, this protects conscience is not something that's sort of owned by Christians. It protects everyone's conscience rights. And and, and once they began to see it in a broader sense and, and fear it less, there was much more buy-in. But back to this office, this was tremendously significant, both again, in terms of real cases, protecting real employees, medical uh, professionals who had been forced. And, and so the Civil Rights Office came in and, and on behalf 
of the person whose conscience rights were abridged and um, worked with the, the hospital or, or the healthcare institution to create a settlement, to create an agreement. How are you going to accommodate this person's conscience rights? And unfortunately, this is this particular office has been um, singled out to be on the chopping block with the Biden administration. You know, all of the supporters of the Biden administration have made it known that this is something they want to see go. I didn't and, know that, Mary. So that's already mm-hmm. been spoken of openly yeah. and it's on, yep. on the way out. That's very sad. Yeah. It is. It is. So these are, these we'll are simply see. laws that you say that already exist and that should mm-hmm. be followed. Right. And so if they abolish the office, which is the demand to get rid of this office, it doesn't mean that those underlying laws go away. They don't. Again, you lose that visibility. You uh, get a signal from the Office of Civil Rights and HHS that says, you know what? We're not. That's not a high priority for us. And that leaves individual healthcare workers sort of floundering because who's going to come to their defense? Who is going to make clear to the employers that they need to take seriously these obligations under the law? And, and so it changes the tenor of things. And we'll see how that goes. It's very hard for, sm- for single private individuals to stand up for these things by themselves. It's very, it takes a lot of bravery. And if you don't have someone big on your side <laughs> that you can right, call on, how do you mm-hmm. do this? I mean, your whole livelihood is on the line. Exactly, exactly. And that's unfortunately what employers know. And that has been the nature of the threat in some cases that office, the conscience office intervened in where people were basically told, you know, your job is on the line unless you do X, Y, and Z in violation of your conscience. Again, I, I, this is a concern going forward. What is going to happen? You know, is this office going to survive? Is it going to survive with teeth, with meaning, with integrity? I'm not optimistic. I hate to say it, but there's a lot of work, again, that can be done at levels other than the federal government. And I think if these things come to pass and under the Biden administration, we're not seeing this kind of uh, favorability towards recognizing and supporting conscience rights, then we need to be demanding and seeking it on the state level and local levels, people working within their communities, and then appealing to litigation if need be. So we're not out of options here. Well, it seems clear that we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and really get to work over the next four years Mm -hmm. Um, and and try to not lose uh, some of the gains that were made in the last four years and then also maybe to consolidate um, some victories that were made, right? And so thank you so much, Mary, for helping us to look back over the last four years and uh, a little bit forward (laughs) with a little trepidation um, to what's coming. We hope that you'll be back with us often. I'd like to mention your book again to our listeners. It's called Get Out Now. Uh, You wrote it with your sister, Teresa Farnan, and it's excellent. I've I've bought several copies and and given it to to friends because it, it really is full of wonderful information and thank you for that book and for thank the great, you so much the great work you do uh, for the ethics and public policy center and the catholic women's forum where can they learn more at catholic women's forum catholicwomensforum.org or we have a new website personandidentity.com which deals with questions of gender ideology and christian anthropology um, supporting the the idea of the person which is also very much at issue well thank you again mary and happy new year thank you all right thanks so much Chrissy. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, your hostess. My good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, is joining me. We also have Mallory Quigley of the Susan B. Anthony List. We're going to talk to her about the Georgia runoff Senate races that took place this past week, as well as some other exciting things, like so many pro-life women elected to Congress this time around. And we would love to turn to some good news. We wanted to touch base on some of the great pro-life wins we had in this past election, especially when we look at the House of Representatives and all the pro-life women who are coming on board. So, Mallory, can you tell us about some of these women? And I've lost count. What was the final count of new pro-life women in the House of Representatives? We are at 18 new pro-life women joining 11 returning incumbents, so 29 pro-life women. It's the most pro-life women ever elected to the U.S. House. It's incredibly exciting. So much bad news out there, but at least that's some really encouraging news. So can you tell us about some of your favorites? Who are you most excited about in this embarrassment of riches of new pro-life women in the House? 
absolutely. I mean, somebody like uh, Michelle Fishbach, she's coming from Minnesota, incredibly pro-life. Her husband was the executive director for Minnesota Concerned Citizens for Life, and she is a member of the state senate. She is the lieutenant gov- was the former lieutenant governor. So very strong pro-life background. Young Kim from California. Oh, she yes. is going to be the first Korean-American Republican woman to be in the U.S. House, also pro-life. Maria Salazar from Florida. She's the daughter of Cuban immigrants. And she defeated an incredibly uh, long-time entrenched pro-abortion Congresswoman Donna Shalala. And this is Gracie's neck of the woods. Can I just add a little local color? We call her Maria Elvira, because that's her whole name, Maria Elvira Salazar. (laughs) Yes, it really is very exciting that there's just so many firsts, many, like it's a more diverse group of women. How about Stephanie Bice? of Oklahoma. Doesn't she have an interesting background? Yeah, she I believe is the first Iranian American ever elected to Congress and she's pro-life. So it's really it's very exciting. Uh, Certainly a silver lining. Not only because of all these new faces but because a good chunk of them are replacing pro-abortion votes. And this is something that we're going to need very desperately, aren't we? With the way things are looking. In Georgia we're having the Senate uh, uh, runoff races and uh, that's not looking very good. Mallory, maybe you can tell us how that how that's going. Thanks, Gracie. I mean, unfortunately, it looks like both of our pro-life candidates are down. Some outlets have called the race for Reverend Raphael Warnock. Very upsetting that someone who calls himself a pro-choice pastor would be elected from the state of Georgia. The other race, Senator Perdue against John Ossoff, that is appears to be heading towards a recount and so we've got to pray that we can hold on to at least one of these seats in order to avoid control of the U.S. Senate going to pro-abortion forces. Mallory, I know Susan B. Anthony List has been just had an incredible ground effort in Georgia. I would love to hear a little bit about what is it like for your canvassers when they go door to door talking to people about these issues. I'm curious what kind of response they get. And if you think the voters have an understanding of how Mm -hmm. big the stakes are. Going door to door is something that Susan B. Anthony List and our Super PAC Women Speak Out that we've done since 2014. So we've had some years now to really work on our strategy and work on how we identify the best people to go door to door. Uh, and I think it starts there, you know, that we we hire incredibly dedicated pro-life activists, many people who are involved in other areas of the pro-life movement, whether they volunteer at pregnancy centers or are active in their local church. And so when they go door to door and they're encountering, you know, you never know who's going to be on the other side. Whether that person has experienced abortion in some way themselves, what hurts they have in their life. And I've witnessed some really amazing interactions between our field team and voters that they've met. I, in in 2018, we were in Indiana at, with a New York Times reporter, no less, you know, at just, you know, standing at our elbows and listening into this conversation. And the woman who, the, who was the voter, she shared with one of our canvassers that she had had an abortion years ago and she had never told anyone else and um, and how she had been suffering from that experience and so you know we're there to to educate people on political and policy matters but because this is something that people feel care so deeply about and they're coming from just such a place of love there was this really healing moment for this voter and they she asked to hug this was long before covid back when we were talking very closely to voters at their doors and it was just a really beautiful moment so i i think that you know beyond those kind of very personal stories uh we have seen that people are very moved by this message a lot of people even pro life people do not realize 
just how extreme abortion law is in our country, that you can have an abortion up until the moment of birth and that we're one of only seven countries to allow elective abortion beyond five months. That kind of statistic, when we bring that to a voter, we find how we see that even if they were maybe planning to vote for another candidate, whether on an, for an issue, whether it's immigration or climate change, when we explain to them the difference where the candidates are on life, they can vote for the pro-life candidate. I was really interested in uh, something that, that Susan B. Anthony did this year, which was to, to reach out to Spanish-speaking uh, people in the state of Georgia uh, through digital ads. And you featured one, yes. of, my, one of my personal favorites, uh, Eduardo Verastegui, who yes. is a Mexican actor who's probably one of the handsomest men on earth, I think. And he's, <laughs> <laughs> you can see I feel strongly about him. And, uh, I might agree. You agree? Good. And he, I might um, agree. He's been in Bella and Little Boy, just to name two, which two actually really beautiful films if uh, mm -hmm. they're in English. And uh, if our listeners haven't uh, seen them, I highly recommend them. Bella and Little Little Boy are two films from him. Yes, the partnership with Latino Partnership for Conservative Principles and Eduardo was so exciting, something we were really, we were thrilled to be able to do. We identified almost 100,000 Spanish-speaking voters in Georgia who received those ads on their computers and tablets and phones. And it's just, it's always so encouraging for me what, to hear Eduardo, whether he's logging onto Facebook to pray the rosary or, uh, you know, just talking about the importance of voting pro-life, that he's feels so strongly about this to, and, and, and recognizes, you know, how the chain reaction that American politics and policy sets off for the rest of the world. You know, he's he's a, he's not American. You know, he's speaking to us from our neighboring country to the South. You know, it's like, it's just so cool to me to see um, pro-life activists internationally speaking into what's happening here and, and delivering this message to voters in the language that is their, you know, is their original language. It's, it's really cool. You know, I know the Susan B. Anthony List has another effort in Georgia of a very different nature. It's it's fascinating to hear about this person-to-person -person interaction in terms of the political door-to-door -door campaign, but we know that this issue is really about changing hearts and minds, and mm -hmm. it's so encouraging to hear about that interaction. But I know Susan B. Anthony List has this effort to plan for a culture of life if we're getting to that place where we're having more success changing hearts and minds and building a culture of life and how do we do that if the supreme court does someday allow states to pass real legislation to protect unborn children can you tell us a little bit about susan b anthony list planning uh in in that effort i believe the effort is called plan Yes, that's right. Uh, Plan for Her. It's a really beautiful new project that began actually where I am here talking to you from Northern Virginia. And it, it was an effort to link up people that were ministering to women in unexpected pregnancies through pregnancy resource centers to the additional public and private resources that women and their families need when they're pregnant and when they're raising very young children. We recently expanded that to Georgia and are, are working on building up a network of these public and private resources for women. It's all with the goal of on that day, that amazing, incredible day that, uh, uh, that Roe versus Wade is overturned and abortion is no longer an option in many states, if not throughout the country, making sure that the pro-life movement is prepared long before that time to give women and their families and their children the help that they need in order to be in the best position to choose life. So it's, you know, it's not our usual, you know, of course we're focused on politics and policy, but policy changes, politics and policy both change culture and, and vice versa. So making sure that we're just prepared for the outcome that we're seeking. And um, we're not alone in this. The, the pregnancy center movement has grown so much in the last decade, you know, in the last few decades, really, to be medical clinics, you know, offering financial and material resources. You know, it's not just giving a woman a bag of diapers and sending her on her way. It's 
really coming alongside her. Abby Johnson and the Pro Love Ministries, they're they're doing uh, similar great work in this area. Really just coming alongside a woman and, and seeing what is it that she needs to choose life. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-host Maureen Ferguson, and we're talking with Mallory Quigley of the Susan B. Anthony List about the Georgia runoff races. Mallory, earlier in the show, in the first segment, I was talking to Mary Hassan from the Ethics and Public Policy Center about the Trump administration's achievements in the in the field of religious liberty. And one of the things we talked about was the different the, the different policies that he was able to to put through surrounded by good people as he was. And we're looking sadly the next 4 years at a, a very different landscape and one of the things that has us very worried and I was wondering how you felt about it was uh, a presumptive pick by Joe Biden of Javier Becerra for head of HHS. Yeah, that is indeed a really disturbing, uh, concerning prospect that we would go from uh, have such a dramatic change at HHS, which, of course, is the department where so much abortion policy is set. Not only is is Javier Becerra a longtime pro-abortion activist, I mean, his record may not be known to some just how bad it is. He served as AG uh, in California, trying to force pregnancy centers to advertise and refer for abortions. Eventually, the Supreme Court shut that down. He went after pro-life hero David Daleiden for exposing the harvest and selling of body parts inside Planned Parenthood. And and a lot of I didn't realize this uh, until until some one of my colleagues had pointed it out to me. But he was in Congress for a long time um, before his role as AG in California. Uh, the, he even voted against the partial birth abortion ban. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, a long time pro-abortion activist and being put in a role where he has the ability to impact a lot of, of abortion policy. And so the pro-life movement is going to need to be on guard in that incidence and to call out extremism everywhere we see it. Mallory, can you explain to us how the Biden administration is going to go about unraveling all these pro-life policies? I know some of them are as simple as the stroke of a pen with an executive order, say, to overturn the Mexico City policy, the protecting life and global health policy, to reverse that and have our tax dollars again funding the promotion of abortion as a method of population control as part of our foreign assistance. So, So some of those things are as simple as a President Biden stroke of the pen. Other other have gone through the regulatory process and that will be a little more difficult to unwind. Can you explain some of that to our listeners? I'll do my best. Um, yeah, I mean, just just think about the, basically look at the, the list of, of wins that we've seen under pro-life President Trump from appointing the pro-life Supreme Court justices. How could they thwart that? Well, they could expand the Supreme Court and, and dilute uh, the progress that we've made there. You know, creating a new office at HHS to protect conscience, you know, shutting, closing that office down. Maureen, you said it best. The president has, you know, implemented the Mexico City policy. We're, of course, used to past administrations that turning on and off. But President Trump didn't just uh, reinstate it, he expanded it. The Protect Life rule, the first president to defund Planned Parenthood of up to $60 million. Uh, So many of these things can be done. Everything that can be done through executive action, we can anticipate that the Biden administration will seek to do that. And that's an area where the pro-life movement will have very little control. And the only recourse will be to expose it and to tell the American people about it so that they understand how extreme the Biden-Harris administration is. And that's the bottom line. Do you think that there will be an edge here because Joe Biden calls himself such a faithful Catholic, an edge to explain to the American people that this that a faithful Catholic cannot, <laughs> in good conscience, be using his pen to promote and perform abortions? Well, I think that 
you know, there's a big difference between the disconnect between Joe Biden's professed faith and and how that's going to play out in policy is already out there for for everyone to see. I mean, he he he's completely flipped on the Hyde Amendment and has said that he believes in forcing taxpayers to fund abortion on demand. So, I mean, right there, we know that his Catholic faith is unlikely to prick his conscience on any of these issues where, uh, you know, to leave in place any of the probably protections that the, the Trump administration will have have implemented. Mallory, we're almost out of time, but um, I want to ask you before you go, the Susan B. Anthony List is a very influential organization that, that really achieves great things. It, it gets the right people with pro-life views who are going to be faithful to the ideal that all human lives have dignity. What does the Susan B. Anthony List see now with the big change in the landscape and and sort of the headwinds all against us? The pro-life movement never stops, Gracie. Mm -hmm. We cannot and will not rest until every life is protected under the law, until women are protected from the atrocity of abortion. There are headwinds, but this is also God's battle. And there have been so many signs of hope and life within the last few months, within the last few years. Pro-life state legislators have been working diligently since since President Obama was elected. It, they've been working overtime to pass pro-life laws at the state level. Many bans on abortion after five months, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, bans on discrimination abortion, lethal discrimination against children who are diagnosed with conditions such as Down syndrome when they're in the womb. And lots of these laws have passed at the state level supported with Democrat support. And they're working their way through the courts right now, headed towards a Supreme Court where we have Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and Justice Neil Gorsuch. So there's so much to be thankful for, for these first four years of, of the Trump administration. And there's so much to defend, but it's not all it, it's not all in us. God has a plan and he's going to continue to work through us flawed human beings in times when there is so much uncertainty. I I just have to, you know, keep praying to to Jesus and and, and through Mary for Mary's intercession that that she'll guide our nation. You know, I think it's really fitting that, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe is the patroness of the Americas. She's the patron of the pro-life movement and we got to pray for her intercession for tomorrow, you know, for next week and for the year ahead. But we cannot stop, no matter what happens, um, fighting for the right to life of the unborn. Well, I'm very glad that the Susan B. Anthony list is on that. And I'm really glad that you are too, Mallory. To learn more about their important work, visit sbalist.org. And thanks again, Mallory. Hope to have you back on soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, ladies. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday as the Church celebrates the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. The Advent season, as you remember, always features John the Baptist at the Jordan, calling us to conversion so that we might make straight the paths for Christ to come to us. The Christmas season finishes with the Feast of the Lord's Baptism, in which Jesus, at the end of his hidden life, brings to fulfillment what John had been prophesying by his deeds. John had foretold Jesus' eventual coming, promising, as we will hear in the Gospel, One mightier than I is coming after me. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it happened that at the end of decades of hidden life, Jesus' full identity was revealed to the Jordan, When the Holy Spirit descended upon him and God the Father spoke from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. There, Jesus received a baptism and another baptism, a more significant and efficacious one, was announced. The baptism Jesus received from John, like all the other baptisms John was doing, was merely a sign of repentance. As Jesus, who came into the world to take away the sins of the world, foreshadowed in the waters of the Jordan, what he would later accomplish in the baptism of blood on Calvary. This is the baptism Jesus inaugurated at the Jordan, when he, by his own baptism, made the waters of baptism capable of delivering on what they signified, not just representing the need for the forgiveness of sins, but actually forgiving those sins. This is the baptism that Jesus, in his valedictory address immediately before ascending into heaven, gave as his great commission to the disciples, 
whom he entrusted with the completion of his own salvific work. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Countless generations before us put those words into action. Eventually, each one of us was brought to that saving stream of life-giving water, where Christ, through our minister, cleansed us of our sins and filled us with God's own life. On the day of our baptism, God claimed us as his own. We were made members of Christ's own body. We entered into his death and risen life. The Holy Spirit came down upon us and made us each a temple of the Holy Spirit. God the Father lovingly adopted us as his beloved children, in an audibly but truly said of us what he said of Christ, You are my beloved son. You are my much-loved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. The key for us, though, is not to forget who we truly are. Pope St. Leo the Great, in his 5th century homily for the Christmas season that comes to a close on Sunday, exhorts us to live up to the identity we receive in baptism. St. Leo urges, Christian, remember your dignity. Now that you share in God's own nature, do not return by sin to your former base condition. Bear in mind who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Do not forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of God's kingdom. Through the sacrament of baptism, you have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not drive away so great a guest by evil conduct and become again a slave to the devil. For your liberty was bought by the blood of Christ. To remember that baptismal dignity and live in accord with it constitute the chief task of the Christian life. We are called to live consciously as beloved children of God, summoned to live that new life in loving communion with God and others, behaving in the world in such a way that others may witness the difference baptism makes as they see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. To remember our dignity is, to some degree, to remember our baptism. And that presents somewhat of a problem for most of us who were baptized before we were capable of having a memory at all. That is one reason why the church places holy water fonts at the entrance of the church, so that as we enter the church, the first thing we do is to recall the saving waters of baptism, the waters that made us holy sons and daughters of God. At a time in which many baptismal fonts and holy water fonts have been emptied because of the coronavirus, it's still important for us upon entering churches to remember what made us a member of the church the day of our baptism. To remember our baptismal dignity is also the reason why the church at every Easter has us renew the baptismal promises either we or our parents or godparents for us made on the day of our baptism. But if the day of our baptism is really the most important day of our life, and it is, then we should act like it. That begins with celebrating the anniversary of our baptism each year. Pope Francis repeatedly asked Catholics what the day of their baptism is and to celebrate it at least as much as they celebrate a birthday and happily married couples celebrate their anniversary. Godparents are called in a particular way to help their godchildren celebrate the anniversary of their baptism, to reflect on its meaning and to live it. But insofar as many don't remember the day of their baptism, the feast of the baptism of the Lord is a day in which we can recall the graces and commitments of our baptismal day. We can focus on three specific graces and commitments. First, when we receive the baptismal garment, we're instructed to see in this white garment the outward sign of our Christian dignity and to take that dignity unstained into eternal life. Is our baptismal garment still clean or do we need to dry clean it in the sacrament of penance, especially at a time when so much of our politics, our media, our daily interactions bring us into contact with the fallenness and dirt of the world. It is all the more important to focus on keeping the baptismal garment of our soul unsullied. Second, we received our baptismal candle and were instructed to walk as a child of the light with the flame of faith alive in our hearts. We can ask, how are we doing? Are we on fire with love for God? If not, God wants to reignite us. If so, God wants to turn that flame into a bonfire. Finally, the priest said a special prayer over our ears and our lips, asking God the Father, who made the deaf hear and the dumb speak, to touch our ears to receive his word and our mouths to proclaim his faith to the praise and glory of God the Father. Are we listening to God in prayer and scripture? Are we speaking of him to others? Two of the most important resolutions we can make at the beginning of any given year 
is to pay too close attention to the Word of God and to pass that treasure on. In the opening prayer of the Mass for the baptism of the Lord, the priest will say, Almighty ever-living God, who, when Christ had been baptized in the River Jordan, and as the Holy Spirit descended upon him, solemnly declared him to be your beloved Son, granted we, your children by adoption, reborn of water in the Holy Spirit, may always be well-pleasing to you. God pronounced himself well-pleased in us on the day of our baptism, and our Christian life is one in which we seek always to please him. May God revivify in us the graces of this most important day of our life, so that every day may be a day of baptized grace, until the day when, God willing, he welcomes us home as his beloved sons and daughters. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 